0: Don, and also Ant as well. Um, These guys are from the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, uh, which is a great place where people go for a year to study theology and what it is to present the goodness of God to people in a world with lots of different viewpoints and ideas. So it's wonderful that Don's with us. Can I pray for you? Yes, please. Father, I want to thank you. Uh, for Don coming to be with us today and to share your word. I want to pray that you would fill him with your spirit. You'd anoint his words. I pray you'd help us to open our hearts and our minds that his words amongst us might bear good fruit. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Oh, good morning. This is the first time I'm uh, wearing one of these Brittany mics. I feel very beautiful. Um, and it's a real pleasure for me to be here. i um, I was telling Nick just a little bit earlier, I I actually grew up um, in a church that met in a school uh, back in Australia where I'm from, and it's actually my first time speaking in a a charismatic church setting like this. Um, Ever since coming to England, uh, all the opportunities that I've had to speak have been in sort of very high Anglican services, with very strict liturgy, and there's a lot of standing up and sitting down and reciting, and it's all very, very stressful. Um, so it's, it's a real breath of fresh air for, for me to be here. It's a really homely environment. Um, it really does feel like home, and it's really great to see such a, a tight-knit community here. Um, we have slides? Yeah, that's all right. right. Um, I'd like to start my message today. I'm just opening it up with uh, the story of a court case that happened. Ah, I won't use coaches, clickers. Um, the story of a court case that happened in the United States uh, in the 1970s. And it, it took place in Wisconsin. I don't know if anyone is been or is from Wisconsin. Okay, good. If I get some of the details wrong, uh, no one's going to know. Um, so by, so th- this case in particular involved uh, three Amish fathers. The names of Jonas Yoda, Wallace Miller, and Adin Yutzi. And in accordance to their faith and the Amis, Amish belief, they refused to enroll their children... Um, aged 14 and 15, in school after they had completed the 8th grade. Now, the state of Wisconsin had a compulsory attendance law that required children to attend school until the age of 16. And so the three fathers believed that no further education was needed beyond 8th grade, and so they took their children out of school um, because they believed in simplicity, and they considered that any further education would potentially damage uh, their way of life, their religious way of life. To them, all that was necessary was just basic reading, writing, and mathematics. That's a picture of them there. So the fathers were found guilty of withholding children, their children from school. So they were guilty of violating the law, um, and they were each fined a decent amount of money from the Wisco- state of Wisconsin and obviously they weren't happy about this because they believed that they had uh, some ground to stand on in terms of uh, religious freedom. So they brought it to court and a trial and circuit court upheld their initial guilty conviction, um, concluding that Wisconsin state law was a reasonable and constitutional use of government power. This case escalated all the way to the US Supreme Court um, and on 15th of May 1972, um, in order to come to a conclusion the Supreme Court decided to conduct a very comprehensive examination of the Amish lifestyle. So one thing the court really uh, was trying to establish here was, was this belief that further education beyond the eighth grade held by the Amish fathers, was this belief a conviction or simply a preference? Now that is actually uh, something that's deliberated within uh, the court. So... There are some, some defining uh, parameters for, for each of those things. I've got them sort of listed here. So you can give your entire life in a full-time capacity in the name of a preference. Uh, you can also give your entire wealth to the name of a preference. You can energetically proselytize your preference to all the people that you meet. Uh, you can also want to teach your children uh, your preference. All of these can be done in the name of a preference. Now, a conviction, on the other hand, you know, preference obviously still a very strong belief, but a, a conviction is something that can withstand certain pressures. I've got the pressures listed here. So a conviction is something that can withstand pure pressure. Um, so if your beliefs are such that you need other people to stand with you before you'll stand for them, that's not a conviction, that's just a preference. Um, it'll withstand family pressure. It'll withstand lawsuits, um, jail time, threat of death. Those are the things required um, For a conviction to, sorry, for a belief to be determined to be a conviction. Now, after the examination was done um, on the Amish lifestyle, the US Supreme Court found that the fathers' beliefs about their children's education were indeed convictions, and they wouldn't change under any of these pressures. Now, they concluded that their religious beliefs and their way of life were inseparable and interdependent. And the the US Supreme Court unanimously unanimously supported uh, Yoda and the other Amish fathers. Now, I don't want to affirm or condemn the Amish way of life, that's not what I'm going to do, but I'm just sharing you with the facts uh, as they are. But I do wonder, you know, after reading this story and um, listening to this case, if the US Supreme Court did a thorough examination of my life, of our lives, would they also conclude that our religious beliefs and our way of life are inseparable and interdependent. Now, the reason I share this story is because we're about to to see in Nehemiah chapter 6 how Nehemiah comes under some very significant pressures, um, but in very subtle ways. And when we see the way that Nehemiah responds, I think we can see a very clear picture of a man who has a conviction in what he believes. So, Just a quick recap of what's happened so far all the way up to to chapter 6. So Nehemiah, he is a government official, by no means uh, a priest or a pastor. He's he's the cupbearer to the Persian king at the time. And he learns that Jerusalem is in ruins, and he feels moved. He feels incredibly saddened by the state of Jerusalem, and he feels moved to do something about it. So he appeals to the king and he takes it upon himself uh, to rebuild the walls of, the, of Jerusalem that had been destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. He gets a group of people together, as Ian was mentioning, they march onto Jerusalem and they start rebuilding the wall, There's a big rebuilding effort. And then we see a bunch of challenges coming his way, particularly by a man named Sam Ballat. Um, and in chapter 4 we see you know, the people are rebuilding the wall, the people are mocking them, And then their lives are starting to become threatened by this Sanballat character. Nehemiah makes some adjustments. He protects the people working on the wall. And despite all this adversity, he continues to stay the course. Now, chapter 5, there are problems that arise from within. There's a famine in the land. And then rich landowners try to take advantage and exploit others within the rebuilding effort. And then in the face of all of it, Nehemiah still does the right thing. He makes provisions to take care of the poor but at the same time continues to repair the wall. And now we get to chapter 6, and we have a new slew of challenges uh, that Nehemiah has to face. So the wall is almost finished. Everything is done except for the gates. Everything is in place except for the gates. Now, I was listening to to Richard preach on Nehemiah 5 last week. I went on your website just to to listen to uh, what you've covered so far, and he absolutely nailed that Sinatra bit. Um, but I remember there was a point where he said something like, he felt had he had been dealt a difficult hand with chapter 5, to which I say, "Oh, contraire, because <laughs> chapter 6 is where the real challenge lies, um, because writing this sermon, I must say, was very challenging for me, uh, very challenging for me spiritually, not that it was difficult, um, but it was very spiritually challenging for me. It made me really question a lot of things about my faith, um, and I hope it will also challenge you. But I want to be candid and say, you know, a lot of the spiritual disciplines and principles that I will be covering uh, today in the life of Nehemiah aren't always things that I I get right, um, but they are crucially and incredibly important. So in chapter 6, we see three new, very cloaked, very subtle attacks on Nehemiah. Um, I've named these very broadly an attack through diplomacy, an attack on his reputation, an attack through an appeal to convenience. And we're going to take a look at each one of these attacks and sort of unpack them uh, a little one by one. So the first attack uh, comes through verses 1 to 4, which I have up on screen. If you have your Bibles, that also works, but I'll just read it out here. I'm using the NIV here. Uh, When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Senbalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. So Zimbalit has been trying to undermine Nehemiah's work for weeks now. It's been weeks and weeks, and nothing has worked. And so he tries a very unique uh, and unique approach to his attack this time, and he kind of says, well, since all my efforts to sabotage you aren't working, maybe we should be friends. Uh, so he's, he's trying to, to sort of exert a bit of peer pressure um, on Nehemiah to try and get him to change his mind. Now... If you just take a little bit of time to just imagine yourself in Nehemiah's position. You know, you've, you've been working on this restoration project. It's been tiresome. It's been difficult. You've faced all these challenges. You've faced a lot of adversity. But then you receive a message uh, from three surrounding leaders, three surrounding leaders of nations um, around Judah, around Jerusalem, and you're invited to a conference, essentially. You're invited to a summit to say, you know, Let's, let's talk about what you're doing here. Let's negotiate. Let's mend our differences. Um, you know, this is a pretty big deal. It's kind of like you're, you're meeting with i Tobiah, and Geshem. It's like an ancient Near East G4 summit. Um, and, you know, it seems like a really good thing. Like, it's, it seems like Nehemiah is getting recognition for his work. He's being considered a leader of a nation. Um, and at face value, diplomacy between the nations seems to be on the cards here. If Jerusalem is going to be restored, it certainly wouldn't hurt to have good relationships with the surrounding countries. And after all, the wall is almost finished. So it's just the gates to go in. It doesn't, shouldn't hurt too much for Nehemiah to take a little bit of time off to go and uh, attend this, this little conference. So, I think at face value, if, you, if it was me receiving this offer, it's a really appealing offer. You know, Nehemiah could advance his career and widen his sphere of influence. And after all, doesn't God want us to make peace and have good relationships with the people around us? I would be seriously considering this offer if I was in Nehemiah's position. But Nehemiah's discernment tells him that this offer is insincere and ingenuine, and so he spurns the invitation not once, but four times. Now imagine if this was the current day the negative publicity Nehemiah would have received for rejecting this invitation so many times. You know, the headlines would say, Governor of Jerusalem snubs invitation for peace talks in the Middle East. You know, this is really a very unpopular decision. But so why does, why does Nehemiah do it? Well, he, he himself gives the reason to send ballot. He says, I am carrying on a great work and cannot. I believe the underlying principle behind all of this is that Nehemiah recognizes the great work that God is doing in Jerusalem, and he refuses to be distracted by any other offer or opportunity. I wonder if there are things in your life that are distracting you from what God wants to do in your life, through your life, or anything else. Now, keep in mind, the thing that's distracting Nehemiah here. um, or the, the distraction that Nehemiah is facing, I should say, isn't really a bad thing. Diplomacy is not a bad thing. The things that tend to distract us actually tend to be good things because they're easy to justify. Things like hobbies, you know, personal goals, careers, your studies, these are all really good things. In fact, a lot of these things are God-given things. But there is a danger when we make idols out of them, uh, when we put them and prioritize them over spending time with God or over being in tune with the good work that God is doing. Now, as a theology student from Oxford, I have an obligation to quote C.S. Lewis at least once (laughs) per presentation that I give. Um, So in his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, Lewis details conversations between a senior demon called Screwtape and a junior demon called Wormwood. Um, And Screwtape is giving Wormwood a little bit of advice on how to lure people away from God, and this is an observation that he points out. He says, It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that the cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Now, Playing cards isn't inherently evil, there's nothing inherently evil about playing cards unless you're addicted to gambling, but generally speaking, not inherently evil. But as Aldous Huxley pointed out, man has an almost infinite infinite appetite for distraction. There are many good things in the world that God has given us and God has created for us to enjoy. I personally uh, really enjoy video games, and I find a lot of the time, you know, they do If I I don't let myself, uh, don't catch myself, I get I get distracted and I neglect my duties as a student. I neglect my duties to spend time with God, and I neglect my duties as a husband. Even sometimes, video games aren't evil. I think, (laughs) but you know, there are certain things, certain things that are pleasures that God has created to refresh us. That if we let them get in our way, um the enemy will use them to distract you from what God wants to do. Are there things in your life that distract you from the work that God is doing, that distract you from spending time with him and distract you from getting to know him? So that's attack number one. Attack number two. So we get to Sanballat's next attack in verses five to eight. They're right up there. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are planning to revolt. And therefore, you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king. So, come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply: Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. <laughs> pretty straightforward, I think. Um, so once again, Sanballat, very, very sneaky, very subtly, and very diplomatically even, adding that peer pressure onto Nehemiah. So not only that, but he sends an unsealed letter or an open letter, even something that anyone could have read, um, you know, to create rumors about. Nehemiah's intentions, and his motivations. So, Sanballat is outright attacking Nehemiah's reputation. And it almost seems as if Nehemiah doesn't really make that much of an effort to clear his name. He's just like, it's all in your head, leave me alone. Um, He he doesn't really seem to care about his reputation. Now, once again, I I try to put myself in Nehemiah's shoes, and to me, it seems like his decision seems a little bit callous. You know, in, in his position, in the midst of all these accusations, I would be like, whoa, 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 no, that's not what's happening here, guys. Like, no one's trying to stop an uprising. No one's trying to start a rebellion. I'm here on official business. The king, king gave me permission to be here. You know, there, there seems to be the possibility, even if this report gets to the king of, you know, Jerusalem being taken down by King Attaxerxes, I would be doing anything possible and everything possible to clear my name. I mean, after all, isn't your reputation important? Doesn't the Bible say that your your reputation is a good thing? Now, I went and looked at a bunch of verses. These are all the verses, or there are more, but these are some of the verses um, that the Bible lists about reputation. So in Proverbs, we read that the value of a reputation is far greater than any riches of silver and gold. And then Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that we should do what's right in the eyes of man. He also says in 1 Timothy that a church leader needs to have a good reputation with outsiders. And then in, Jesus, uh, in Luke 6, Jesus says, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Which just seems to be a little contradictory. And then Paul writes, seemingly against himself in the other verses that he wrote, that we, should, we aren't trying to please people, in 1 Thessalonians, and we shouldn't try to win their approval in Galatians. So (laughs) given these verses, what should we do about our reputations? Should we care about what other people think? And I think the answer is yes. But we shouldn't think about we shouldn't care about what people think of us. Rather what we what people think of Christ. You know, as Christians, no matter what you do, no matter how you behave you you always don't know who is watching you. And as Christians, we are always representing Christ. Um, We should always care about what people think of him because your character and the way you behave is a testimony unto him. However, we shouldn't care about what people think about us for our own sake. Rather, we should care about what people think of us as a means of reflecting Christ onto other people. Now, Nehemiah actually did care about his reputation. We'll actually read just a little bit later that he did not want to be given a bad name. He made an effort to clear his name, and he just said, Sam Ballett, you're, you're telling lies here. You're, you're saying these anonymous sources are saying things about me, but none of it is true. He, he did make an effort to dispel these rumors, but he wasn't going to be deba- sorry. he wasn't going to be baited into defending himself and making a big deal out of it so that he would lose track of his work and the work that God was doing through him. He recognized that people could make up rumors about him, but ultimately his confidence and his identity were in the Lord, and so he continued to keep his eyes on the work. Now, being a Christian should lead you to make some pretty unpopular decisions and choices from time to time. But the Bible does tell us that our obedience to God and his truth is far greater than our own reputations. Far more important than our own reputations. All right. So we're moving on to the last attack on, uh, on Nehemiah that Zambalot poses. And that's in verses 10 to 13. Oop. I think this is the most challenging one of them all. Oh, So one day, I went to the house of Shemaiah son of Deliah, the son of Mehdebel, who was shut in at his home. He said, Let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, Should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and St. had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So I just mentioned just earlier, this is at the end of the verse where Nehemiah actually does care about what people think of him. It's important for him um, to do the right thing as a leader, to, to be um, a proper representative of God. Now, just in case you need a bit of background, um, the reason why Nehemiah didn't want to enter the temple is because he wasn't a priest. And there were certain parts of the temple that you weren't able to enter if you weren't properly cleansed and if you weren't a priest. And if he were to step into the temple as a government official, civil engineer kind of guy, he would be committing a sin. But, once again, put yourself in Nehemiah's position. You've come to a real test of whether or not your commitment to God is a preference or a conviction, the threat of death. Someone is sending you a death threat. Now, if I were in Nehemiah's position, once again, I think it would have been really, really easy for me to justify hiding in the temple, especially if I was receiving death threats. It doesn't really seem like a big deal to avoid death, um, to commit something small like going into the temple. And in fact, I'd probably even say that's a really reasonable thing to do. But even under the threat of death, Nehemiah stood his ground and refused to enter the temple. And this really had me questioning, are there things in my life that are sinful, but I ignore them because it's just more convenient or reasonable to do it that way? And absolutely, there are things. Um, I didn't have to give it very much thought. So just by a show of hands, who here considers it important to recycle? Okay. Who here, re- keep your hand up if you recycle when it's really, really inconvenient to do so? Oh, very good. It's much better than I am. Um, because I, 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 you know, I think it's really important to recycle. I think that Christians have a responsibility to take care of God's creation, to take care of the planet, and recycling is a very small part of that. And yet sometimes I'm out you know, in school, or I'm out in a shopping mall, and I've got an empty can, and I can't find a recycling bin, it's so inconvenient for me to take the can all the way home to recycle, so I just throw it in the trash. Now, is that a sin? Maybe, maybe not. You know, it's maybe a little bit more debatable, but I think these sort of small things creep into our lives all the time. These little things that we think, oh, this will be okay. Like, God will understand it's such a small, minor thing. Um, you know, I used to work in business. I used to be a salesperson in Australia. Um, and, you know, for anyone who's worked in sales, you'd be familiar that you'd have to work with targets and there's sometimes often a lot of pressure from, from your higher-ups. And, you know, sometimes it's, more no, it's normal and it's acceptable and it's more convenient to tell a little lie in order to get a slightly bigger order um, just to avoid getting chewed out by your boss. And that's definitely a sin. That's definitely, you know, bearing false witness to someone in order for personal gain. But it's so acceptable, um, and it's such a normal thing in business. And when I think about the idea of, you know, the good life, what is the good life? Um, The American dream, so to speak, you know, have a steady, well-paying job, get married, buy a house, have a big dog, have kids, have enough money to go on vacation whenever you want. Have enough money to eat out whenever you want if you don't feel like cooking. You know, Have enough money to do whatever you want. That seems to be what at least Western society's goal is in life. That's a life of success. That is a life to say, you haven't made. It seems to me like... It seems to me... Oh, no, this is the wrong one. That's right. It seems to me that it's a life that says, I am never, ever inconvenienced. That seems to be the goal for Western society, to to just live in a way that we're always in comfort and everything that we want is at our fingertips. Now, once again, I want to say there is nothing evil about having a job. There's nothing evil about settling down and owning a house. There's nothing evil about that at all. Those are all good things. Those are all things that God has blessed us with. But sometimes, being a part of God's great work means that you'll have to sacrifice comfort and you'll have to sacrifice convenience. It's uncomfortable to forgive people who have hurt you. It's incredibly uncomfortable and it's incredibly difficult. But that is a command that God has given us. It's really inconvenient to tithe. You know, you work really hard for your money. And, you know, money is like congealed life, essentially, and it's really hard to give it away. But that, too, is a command that God gives us. But Nehemiah understood that even under the threat of death, he would not give in to convenience if it meant that he would be committing a sin. I personally think that this appeal to comfort, to convenience, is one of the greatest enemy, greatest weapons the enemy uses against us, and it's very strong sometimes. Because um, that's that's essentially what we've learned is the goal, end goal of life. So those are three lessons that I believe that we can learn uh, from Nehemiah 6 now. Just in closing, I just wanted to say this sermon is also very challenging for me. It's not my intention to stand up here in front of you like some arrogant nerd and be like, your belief is not a conviction, it's a preference. Um, but you know, one of the most common objections that we get at the Occa, and Arnd will be able to attest to this, is that, oh, isn't Christianity just a psychological crutch? You know, isn't it just designed to make you feel better when times are tough? And I think if you just read Nehemiah, it plainly shows that no, Christians are asked to live a life that is a far stretch beyond being a security blanket, being there to make you feel better when things are difficult. This message is just as much for me as it is for anyone else. And Christianity can be incredibly challenging. It requires sacrifices, and it requires inconvenience, and it requires being unpopular sometimes. And if you're hearing a message like this for the first time today, uh, You might be thinking, you know, why even bother with Christianity? It seems so difficult. But the strength and the desire to live sacrificially comes from an understanding of of the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. Now, Jesus gave his life for each one of us, taking our brokenness, taking our hurt, taking our sin, so that we could experience God's unlimited love and grace. And the reason why we should endeavor to live this way um, it's because of the Im- immense love that God has for us. So I just want to ask you, you know, how do you stand with God today? If you've never known this love, this relationship with God, I'd like to give you the opportunity to, to experience it for yourself today. So I'm just going to lead us all into a very simple prayer that leads just involving the words sorry, thank you, and please. Um, and if it's something that is resonating with you, you know, feel free to pray it in your heart. But um, yeah, so if we could just bow our heads, please. Dear Lord, we're sorry for living in a way that is away from your from your teaching and from your love. We're sorry for doing things our own way. I thank you that you sent your Son to die for us on the cross. I thank you that you loved us so much even though we were your enemies. Please come into our lives um, and teach us um, how to be more like, more like you and your son. Please transform us day by day as we commit our lives to you. Amen. All right.
0: Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you, Don. That's been great. Really challenging really helpful um, if if uh